That is my kazoo rendition of the Late Show with Stephen Colbert theme because we are talking to Late Show writer Brian Stack, who also wrote for 18 years with Conan O'Brien, all three of his shows. And I've been wanting to get this guy on the podcast since its inception because I knew that he was a kindred spirit, a guy who loves music of the 60s and 70s and the indie music of the 80s. So I knew I wanted to talk to him. And also because I happen to be a giant late-night comedy nerd, and I'm literally talking to you while staring at my poster of Johnny Carson from his 21st anniversary show, which my dad bought me. So very excited to pick his brain also about his Second City days. He knew Chris Farley before Second City at his first improv gig in Madison, Wisconsin, and he was telling me about what Chris Farley and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler were like before they were famous. And it was just really cool to talk to him. Brian's jacket's hilarious. He has so many iconic sketches with Conan that you can see in some compilations on YouTube. You can just tell that he is somebody who just gets funny, and he's somebody who makes wacky funny, both smart and then the best kind of dumb at the same time. And that's when you know somebody is truly a genius, which is why I'm so cool to just talk to this guy about his tenure in comedy. And also, we talk about the Rock and Roll of Fame because this Saturday, the induction ceremony will be, I think, on HBO Max. So I wanted to talk to him about some bands that he feels should be in the Hall of Fame because that's the whole point of awards and selections, right? So we can talk about who's not on them. That is, at least for me, the New Jersey way. We just complain and guilt. So I was happy to have another participant before those come out. And I do want to (laughs) mention one thing. Um, This almost didn't happen. It got pushed back multiple times because I had laryngitis. Now, many people think I got that from going to the Miami Hurricanes football game (laughs) the weekend before. I'm sure it didn't help, but I literally just, I developed it the night before. And if you go to my Instagram at DanyNewTV or my Twitter you will see a video compilation I made of the next day, me hosting the show on TV with laryngitis, being like, hello and welcome to uh, Mrs. Doubtfire's morning show. I'm I'm Danny New. So uh, if I sound a little hoarse during the interview, um, it's because I was just grateful to have a sound coming out of my mouth at all. Um, but don't really listen to me at all. It's really all about Brian and I'm just so glad he came on and Please enjoy legendary late night writer Brian Stack. And now here's Jungle Fiction. Welcome if you're an old soul, Speedy. The old phrase of the day is fuddy duddy. <laughs> fuddy duddy. Now I'll give our esteemed guest, who I'll introduce in a second, a chance to get that. But I want to ask you first, Speedy. Do you have a guess as to what fuddy-duddy means? Fuddy-duddy. Fuddy-duddy. Hmm. Fuddy-duddy. Fuddy-duddy. Oh, fuddy-duddy. fuddy-duddy. Uh, well, if something is a dud, it's like, bleh, bad, bleh. But, uh, and fuddy sounds kind of funny. So you've made a blunder, but it's kind of a humorous blunder. That is my mm. guess. A humorous blunder. Okay, well, let's check with our esteemed guest, uh, everybody. He is a legendary late-night writer. He has written at all three of Conan's late-night shows. He's now with The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He's from Second City. We love him very much, and his name is Brian Stack. Um, Brian, do you happen to know what a fuddy-duddy means? If I remember the right, the correct usage of it, it usually means someone kind of stuck in their old ways, right? Kind of. Uh... That is correct. Ooh. Ladies and gentlemen, our esteemed guest is one for one. He knows his <laughs> fuddy-duddies. Do you... Do you ever feel like a fuddy-duddy because that's basically this podcast i do get i do get stuck in my old ways a lot i know that like I, i'm very stuck in i'm very habitual 
if I do for good and bad. So like, but I do get stuck in my old ways and old habits a lot. Do you ever sleep with socks on? Almost never, unless it's like, I've done it when it's super crazy cold and like the heat was off or something. I think I've done that a few times, but almost never. Speedy, you ever sleep with socks on? You're both from Chicago, so I figured if it's cold enough over there, well, you'd have to do it. This is true. From from my youth, I, I've been I, I've been taught to pack myself in whenever possible. Socks, coats, I'm always cold. Yes, but um, other times people think you're a murderer for doing it. <laughs> it's been so long since I, I love Chicago. It's always going to be my home, uh, but it's been so long that I bet I did wear them in Chicago and just forgot because it does get crazy cold. <laughs> it well does. <laughs> yeah, d- down here in Florida, sometimes it'll get to like 70 and I'll have to wear socks <laughs> when I go to sleep because it's so, it. so cold. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, just shoot the breeze is, uh, with you. Oh. Nope, I Speedy. Gonna, I was going to interrupt were... and just uh, shoot yes, the breeze talk. first. Yeah, no, talk Chicago. I get it. You hey, want to talk I, about I, Chicago? I did want to talk Chicago just, for a let's second. Get it out of the way now. Do your <laughs> Chicago stuff. I've been so anxious to say that I, I know, um, I read, I read online that you went to St. Viator in Arlington Heights. And uh, I know a lot of people that went to Viator. I'm from Palatine, Illinois. So, I'm from Palatine. You're from Palatine? Yeah, I swear. Oh, oh my gosh. My <laughs> That's God. crazy. What high, Did you go to Fremd or Palatine? I went to Palatine. Oh, okay. Yes. I I lived in that part of Palatine when I was really little. And then we moved to um, the, the not, not too far from where Fremd is, uh, where oh my, my parents lived until 97. So um, so I, right. I grew up most of my life in Palatine from age five on, I think. We were... Uh, after my dad got out of the army, we were in Palatine pretty much until I got out of school. So that's amazing. That's amazing. No kidding. Oh, wow. Most wow. people don't even know what Palatine is. So this is actually blowing my mind right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Most people know it from the, not to bring up a dark thing, but people. Here it comes. Oh, yeah, here it comes. The oh, murders. We were, we were debating if murders. we should bring it up. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't, shouldn't have mentioned it, but that's no, what people okay. know. And it's such an incredibly safe, unassuming little suburb. And. That's what yeah. a lot of people would bring up to me if they know Palatine at all. But it nothing bad ever happened there. And then that was like this crazy thing. But um Yeah. yeah oh, was, that, uh, that's, that was on the street that I that I grew up on actually. I uh oh, wow. Yeah, which I'm mean, for for the viewers at home, they probably don't know about the Browns chicken murders. <laughs> um yeah, but I'm yeah. sorry I mentioned it. <laughs> no, it's good. Okay. Let yeah. me let me let me interrupt you. Okay, so we are feeding out our best friends from college, and in college, she told me that she was not really from Chicago. She's from the small town, but that there was this one famous thing about this small town that was these very famous brown chicken murders. And just objectively from that sentence, I was like, who killed these brown chickens? That's terrible. And then she explained <laughs> me this, this restaurant that existed there. And now, of course, I thought maybe this is the one time since we're finally talking to somebody else who knows about the town that these murders won't come up because you don't have to bring up the one famous thing from it. And instead, oh. we're already back to it. I don't I haven't thought about it in years. And here I am bringing it up. Uh, but yeah, I went to St. Viators, uh, too. It was all guys when I went there. And now it went co-ed years later. And my uh, sister's school merged with Viators and became co-ed. But uh, she went to Sacred Heart. But Oh, to Sacred Heart. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I don't need to get into all those details. But yeah, yeah, I went to divider and um yeah yeah back it wasn't too far from palatine but it was uh probably about 20 minutes yeah about speedy you couldn't save all this to the end of the podcast we can be asking this guy about what it's like to work for stephen colbert (laughs) and conan and we're talking about chicago suburbs instead (laughs) 
You took it away at the clock. I straight up interrupted you, Danny. You were trying to get us on the right track. It's okay. You know what? Now. You can edit all that out. I'm not. I'm not going to edit any of it because there's going to be one other person that listens that's from Illinois. And they're going to be like, oh, my gosh, Arlington. (laughs) All right. Anyway, um, Speedy, next up, Brian, we always do previously on this week. Um, Speedy, what are two things that happened that we might find fun? Oh, yes. This week in history, uh, I've got two number one hits uh, to talk about. Uh, Mm. This week in 1966, uh, the Beach Boys were number one in the UK with Good Vibrations. Mm. Um, And as a little backstory, it came about because uh, Brian Wilson's mother told him that dogs could pick up on vibrations. And the reason that they barked was because of bad vibrations. So he turned it into a song, and then they got number one uh, this week. Wow, I had no idea. That's a I love that song, and I did not know that that's what inspired it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that your favorite Beach Boys song, Brian, or do you have another one that's n- number uno? Ooh, that's a good question. I I love that whole Pet Sounds album. That's that's the one I go back to the most. I'm not. I don't listen to the, the surf stuff much, but I yeah. love. Uh, I I guess I'm kind of a sucker for his melancholy pet sounds songs like caroline no and all that stuff like that that's the stuff that i go back to the most because um i don't know just maybe my irish melancholy personality (laughs) (laughs) but uh, i I don't listen to like even though i think there that pop surf stuff they did is is great for what it is i just i've just never been into that part of their their stuff even if even though it's great yeah every band has like their foot in the door music like the Beatles have their very early pop stuff, and then they actually get to what they really meant to do, and that's the deeper stuff that lasts longer with the fans. So, yeah, like God only knows, you know, songs like that are the ones I tend to listen to the most, yeah. you know, from that Pet Sounds era. And that's probably my favorite. Um, Speedy, what what was the second song you wanted to talk about? Oh yes, uh, from 1984, Wham was number one in the U.S. with "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go," and I got a little backstory on that one as well. Um, so uh, Andrew Ridgely from the band had left a note for his parents, um, and he meant to write, wake me up before you go. But when he was writing it, he accidentally wrote the word up twice. And so he's mid-sentence, and he has, wake me up, up. And he goes, oh, no. So he just finishes it with, before you go, go. And he decided to repeat go as well. <laughs> to That's great. Say face, and it became a song. <laughs> I love when a lot of, the best stuff happens by accident, like little, like accidental things in the recording studio or mistakes. I love when people make mistakes uh, and they turn into, you know, they, they, people roll with it and it turns into the best stuff a lot of times. I'm sure that happens at late night a lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. a lot of our favorite stuff came up by accident and by mistake for sure. <laughs> like you have, you had one sketch with Conan where it was like the safety dance and you're like, you can make toast if you want to. Oh, right, um, yeah. Did that come from like a random thing that just came out of your mouth and you're like, oh, this could be funny? That, you know, I'm trying to remember that it was a lot of that stuff came from screwing around. Like, um, we, a, a very similar bit to that, I think, I think the Men Without Hats conversation channel, which you're referring to, came up uh, by accident. And in a similar way, my, John Glazer did a channel that came from us screwing around. We were talk singing like Michael McDonald from the Doobie Brothers. Um, doing um, a rehearsal, but all the tunes were to taking it to the street, so it'd be like, It is time now for rehearsal. 
You must come down to the studio. <laughs> we just were doing that all afternoon, and Glazer turned it into the Camp Michael McDonald, where it's Michael McDonald as a camp counselor saying, like, you don't know me, but I'm your counselor. <laughs> it's just it's absolutely absurd. He goes, be sure to pair up with your body and stay inside the area. If you go beyond the ropes, you'll be asked to leave the water. It's completely insane. It's on YouTube if you want to check it out. It's one of my favorites. So a lot of our stuff was just came from screwing around, you know, like it was just bits in the office, you know. Do, do you ever like try to quantify like what is writing time like i feel like a lot of the writing is actually just like talking and acting it out figuring it out before you're actually like physically typing it that it, it's really kind of a complicated thing like you know a lot of times a lot of the stuff we would write like for desk pieces and stuff you would just be sitting at your computer trying to write line jokes or something like for year 2000 or if we're working on the monologue at steven show or, or whatever uh but it's very collaborative and bouncing ideas off, off of each other, very much in the way improv. I came out of an improv background, and so did Stephen and Conan. And um, I worked with a lot of people who were stand-ups, though, but everybody had a kind of love for collaboration and bouncing ideas off each other and spitballing. And, and as you know, like a lot of if you if you feel free to toss out something really stupid, a lot of times that it like Brian McCann at a writers' meeting put a FedEx box on his head. And started blessing us, and we're like FedEx Pope. Why not? <laughs> it became a beloved character of Brian McPence, you know. And it was a complete. It was from screwing around in the office. There was no no one would have thought of that at their computer, you know. So if you're with the right people, a lot of times uh, and just having fun, a lot of the best stuff comes up that way. I think. Wow. Oh my gosh, I mean that makes me wonder too about something like. Uh, minty the candy cane that briefly fell on the ground like were you just in the office someone dropped something was like oh man (laughs) you know todd levin uh came up with that idea and um asked me to sing the song and i had so much fun singing it because i love old timey you know i love doing that minty you know minty fell on the ground you know and uh, (laughs) i sang it in a little cone that was kind of like a it was like one of those cones you'd use at an old fashioned football game, you know, to amplify your voice. Mm-hmm. And so I just sang it in through that and Brian McCann played Minty, but Todd, it was Todd's idea. And um, I wish I knew where he got it from. I think we were looking for holiday related bits and he noticed that candy canes, if you do drop them, everything sticks to them. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I'd love to ask Todd what, what the actual origin was for that. But that, yeah, Todd Levin deserves the credit for that one. So, we were talking about the improv and the collaboration, and you very humbly mentioned that you have an improv background. Well, you're from Second City, which is the improv background. Um, when you were there, and I know you like Amy Poehler was there that time, Rachel Dratch, maybe Chris Farley a little bit. Um, did you know that these people were going to be famous when you were around them? You know what's really amazing is Chris. Chris Farley was actually in my very first improv group in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I was going to grad school at University of Wisconsin, and Chris is from Madison, and um, Chris was, we just happened to end up in the same, it was my first performing I ever did. Uh, I was, uh, I took an improv Olympic uh, class the summer of 86 right after I graduated from college, but I didn't perform until I got to Madison and got into this little theater called The Ark, which is a laundromat now, unfortunately, (laughs) but um, Chris was in that group, and it was so 
I was so new that I didn't have perspective on what it takes to be famous. I knew nothing about show business, but I do remember thinking this is one of the funniest people I've ever seen or been around. And he certainly seems funnier or as, as funny or funnier than anybody I'm watching on TV. Like he all, he had that effect on everyone, Chris, like we'd go into a bar and he would be making people laugh so hard. I'll never forget. He was making this middle-aged couple laugh in a bar in Madison so hard that the guy actually said, what's your name, man? Regular people could tell he was special, you know, uh, he goes, I've never laughed this hard. What is your name? Like it was, it was, it sounds like I'm making that up, but I, I'm not. It was just, that was the effect he had on people. And then he went off to, he was on such a lightning track in Chicago that he was already out of second city by the time I started working there. I used to go see his shows all the time, but, uh, he was, he was already on SNL by 1990 and I didn't start working at second city till 92, but I was in the Chicago community just doing it for fun. And I would see all his shows and he would drop in and do some of the improv shows with us and stuff. But he was, he was a star pretty much right away. Like Del Close, the legendary guru in Chicago, improv guru, recognized his talent right away and said, oh, that's the next Belushi. You know, he recognized it right away. And he put him in the main stage cast uh, almost immediately. And it was always very obvious to everyone how special it was. And then I was lucky enough to be around, yeah, like Amy and, and Tina and the, Rachel and Dave Keckner and Adam McKay and I, my wife Miriam Tolan was in um, my touring company and uh, also worked with me in the resident company. So I got to work with so many wonderful people. Neil Flynn, who was the janitor on Scrubs, he was in our cast and hmm, big fan. Yo, I love Neil. He he's one of the funniest people ever. Yeah, he improved all his lines on Scrubs, so that makes total sense. Yeah, he was always so funny. Yeah, I was just so lucky to be around. And Stephen Colbert was actually there when we were too but he was in the main stage cast when we were in the touring company and by the time i got into the resident company steven was gone but we used to i used i used to admire all them so much he was in the main stage cast with amy sedaris and steve carell and uh steve's wife nancy was in our touring company um and she was wonderful to work with and so we got to be around them and watch them and it was just like the local entertainment we felt so lucky to be around all these people you know, and Amy, Amy was another person, uh, Amy Fuller, who, even though she was a few years uh, younger than us, she, she was another person that right away, like, I saw her and Tina for the first time the same night when they were at Improv Olympic, and they were both obviously very special. Uh, Amy was seemed to be fully formed already, like, I don't think she's even really changed much. She was just seemed like a fully formed performer. Tina was very shy and she would step forward and say something incredibly brilliant and then kind of step back. <laughs> but she, she came out of her shell completely and is obviously a brilliant performer. And she was always a brilliant mind, you know, just, she has that genius wit. I always thought of her as Dorothy Parker without the drinking problem, you know, <laughs> <laughs> most of us had drinking problems in Chicago, but it was a, uh, but she didn't. <laughs> I totally, it's like hard to imagine like Chris Farley, like an improv, because it's like improv, like all these people like work together. And when Chris Farley goes into a sketch, he just like takes over the whole thing. It's hard to imagine any of these people like being collaborative when they're so talented and shine all the time. It's funny. One of the weird paradoxes, and Dell used to talk about this, was the the best team players. If you're if you're making your scene partners look good, you end up looking really good too. And then there are some people that are just special performers who. Like I remember hearing that Jimi Hendrix, when he was even in the background in a backing band, 
your eye was just drawn to him. And some people do have just star quality that you're going to look at them, even if they're doing ensemble work and they're not stealing focus, their focus goes to them anyway. And there are some people like that. Chris was definitely one of them. And, uh, but he was a great team player. He, you always hear about that from people that work with him at SNL. Like Al Franken said in one of the Chris Farley documentaries, he said he, Chris was the biggest fan of everybody else. You know, he was just, he loved being around all these funny people and he never really wanted to outshine anybody. He just wanted to be around these other people. And that's one of the reasons everybody loved him. Um, but uh, he, he was very generous and very selfless on stage, but he was also a star. So your, your eye did go to him. He had that quality you can't teach. You know, uh, Billy Wilder once said of uh, Audrey Hepburn, he said, what Audrey had, you can't learn, you can't teach. God just touched her on the cheek and there she was. And um, I always love that line because some people just have that magical quality. I, don't, I can't put my finger on what it is, but you know it when you see it. Yeah. When you joined Second City and got into that world, was it just kind of for fun or did you always know in the back of your head that I want to get into comedy, I want to be a writer, this is a, a, a strategic move for, for my career? Well, when I was younger, I, I loved comedy, but it never occurred to me that I could do it myself. And then when I took, uh, I fell in love with improv. Uh, first seeing Mick Napier, who is who I went to college with at Indiana University for undergrad, he uh, got me interested in improv, and I always thought it looked really fun, but I was a little too scared to try it for a while. And then when I started doing it, at first I was just doing it for fun and no money, you know, just at nights and on weekends with like Improv Olympic and with, with people. And I never really thought I'd, I would get a chance to do it professionally. Uh, but I always dreamed, once I did, saw Second City and everything, I dreamed of working there, but I didn't think I was going to get a chance to. And um, I was always in my head at the idea of doing it. And I was always, my brain would turn into tumbleweeds at the idea of like ever trying to get in there. Um, but luckily they came to see our group. We were, I was in a group called Jazz Freddy that um, Pat Finn and Rachel Dratch and Dave Kackner and my wife Miriam uh, and some other friends of ours were in, Kevin Dorf, who worked at Second City with us too. And several of us got hired out of that group Second City came to see us and I didn't know they were in the audience. So, and I'm so glad I didn't because <laughs> I was relaxed and having fun. And um, I'll always be grateful that I didn't know <laughs> they were there because I, I probably would have been a wreck like usual. Um, so I, I was so grateful that I did get a chance to work there and uh, I learned so much and I got to work with so many wonderful people. And, and that led to the, eventually to the, the late night with Conan O'Brien opportunity um, but I got to work at Second City for a couple of years in the touring company where you go wherever they send you. We played a lot of colleges and little towns. And then um, I was in the resident company for a couple of years where you just stay in Chicago. So when you got to Late Night, had he like, had the show overcome the Letterman shadow yet? Because I know for a couple of years people didn't like him, even though he was brilliant. They just hadn't seen someone like him before. And then he kind of found his own and figured out his niche. Had he come along by that point? Yeah, the, the show was relatively stable. But I got in there. He started in 93. And I started there uh, in 97. So he was already like past that early, are we getting canceled? Are we, uh, you know, cause I remember one hearing one time they heard they were canceled on a Friday. And then on Monday they were told they weren't. <laughs> 
And really? that sums it up. <laughs> I can't even imagine that roller coaster ride that they had early on. And they, um, God, I give them so much credit for sticking in there and just continuing to just do what they thought was funny. And uh, Andy Richter, you know, was another friend of mine from the improv community in Chicago. And, um, and Andy was always one of the funniest guys in Chicago too. And um, just a, a wonderful sense of humor. And I thought, I knew they were doing really fun, daring, outrageous stuff with Smigel and, and all those guys. And, um, but I, it, early on, they really did think it was going to go down in flames for a while. And, but then by the time I got in there, it, it felt like it was, the ship was running pretty smoothly and, so I came into a pretty stable situation. Yeah. And then you were there for 18 years. Yeah, it was supposed to be 13 weeks, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> I was coming in to fill in for a writer that was had broken his leg, Tommy Blacha, who's a super hilarious guy. And um, I came in, I got a little sublet, and I was coming in for 13 weeks. I'd been recommended, sent in some ideas, and luckily they liked them enough to bring me out. And then... Um, Luckily, they liked the stuff I was doing during that first 13 weeks. And Amy Poehler is actually in the very first sketch I ever wrote at Conan, which was Andy's little sister, where she had pigtails and braces. And she had a crush on Conan. And then when she was politely rejected, becomes like apocalyptically enraged. And, <laughs> is screaming. and Amy made the sketch with her performance. The idea was really basic, but she she killed it. And um, so, yeah, turned from 13 weeks into 18 years, which I'll always be grateful for. And um it was a, uh, it was a really great place to work with great people. What was really cool about late night with Conan specifically, and started like with radio in the first couple of weeks onwards, that like he had so many indie artists on that we liked that didn't get a lot of traction, and we could probably spend the rest of this podcast, and I'll try to contain myself, but like this whole podcast could just be you saying X old comedian old musician or indie musician came in and said hi to you and we would go oh my gosh that's so cool uh, do you have any specifically we can start with indie artists that came in that you liked and you're like oh my god they're here this is so great oh yeah there were a lot of times i wouldn't have the guts to go say anything but there were a few times where i was like oh i gotta you know say a quick hello or thank you like paul westerberg from the replacement site when he was on, I there I love the replacement so much, and I I had to say a quick thank you to him. And when REM was on, you know, um, I just I ended up my baby my daughter who's twenty three now she was she was a baby, and I got a picture of her with Peter Buck. He was holding her, and um, that was such a thrill for me. And he was nice enough to try to make fish faces at her and make her laugh and stuff. And um, there were a few other people like a lot of times I would just watch them in the hall as they walked past, you know, and just. Yeah, I would never go talk to them. And like Neil Young was one where I wasn't going to bother him. I wasn't going to say anything. But I was coming out of the makeup chair and I was in Frankenstein makeup. <laughs> I was doing a Frankenstein bit. I come out into the airlock right as he's finishing his interview. So we're it's only me, Neil Young, and the segment producer. And I'm just standing there. And he goes, hey, that Frankenstein bit was funny, man. <laughs> and I was like... And I was like, oh, my God. And I was like, I almost, my brain almost melted because um, he's like one of those guys you don't even think of as a real person, you know. And yeah. he was just, he couldn't have been nicer. And um, I just said, I just got to thank you really quickly. Your music has meant so much to me. And he was, he was very gracious about it. But uh, most of the time I would kind of leave people alone. But just seeing someone in the hall, like Brian Wilson, 
he came on and I, one of the most memorable things I ever saw in the hallway outside our studio was he was rehearsing the harmonies for heroes and villains with his backup singers and the backup band. And he was holding his finger up. Like you always see in the photos with Brian Wilson, where he's holding his index finger up and raising it up for the harmonies. <laughs> Just to hear him rehearsing the harmonies in the hallway I'll never forget that because it was just, I was like, this is just a magical thing to see, you know, um, and I didn't talk to him or anything, but I just, I just, just watching that was incredible. You know, just, just such a privilege to see that. Uh, for everyone at home, Brian Wilson is the lead man of the Beach Boys. And Heroes and Villains was a song I didn't know until it was in the opening sequence in Fantastic Mr. Fox, the Wes Anderson movie. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And that's that. how I learned that song. I was like, oh, this is a great song. Yeah. And then I played it for Speedy in college because I thought it was a great song. Oh, yes. Cool. And now I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I wasn't super familiar with it, I think, until he Me played neither. it on the on the show. And I was like, oh, this is a great song. When I listen to Conan's podcast a lot and Dana Carvey was on there, he told the story about Neil Young going up to him at a party to tell him that he really liked Chris Farley. And apparently Neil oh. Young went up to Dana Carvey and was like, that fat kid's funny as shit. <laughs> I love that so much. I did not know that. Yeah, it's oh, a great story. Great. I was cracking up. Um, but everybody loved Chris Farley. Yeah, that's, that's a yeah. Thing. He, he he was just, and he was so the the thing that kind of breaks my heart about. I'm glad everybody got to see him do so much funny stuff. But he there were so many things he could do that he didn't get a chance to show in film. Like he could do really subtle acting. That I saw him do a scene at Second City. It was so subtle and beautifully acted with Tim Meadows and Jill Talley where he was a real actor, you know, he wasn't just a fall down guy. And, um, and I know he got to show uh, a lot of that, like in his sketch work, but he, he had depths to his acting that he didn't get to show in, in film. I think that, um, I wish he'd gotten like, he was supposed to do play fatty Arbuckle in a, a film really? that Mamet was writing and, um, you know, things like that, that I feel, like I would have loved to have seen him get to do that, but I am grateful that so much funny stuff he did is is still out there. You you mentioned the Frankenstein thing, which was something I was going to bring up because that was one of the clips I watched of you that I could not stop laughing at. My favorite one where you are you're Frankenstein and your goal is to waste people's time, and you go <laughs> into the hallway and Tom Hanks is standing there, and Conan's like, "Oh wow, Tom Hanks, thanks Frankenstein," and then you shove Tom Hanks out of the way and you go look. <laughs> A light switch. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you like that. He was so nice. He's exactly what, like, everybody expects to be. He was so nice to everyone. And um, and by the way, it was his idea to get excited about the light light switch himself. Um, oh, no way. So he started jumping up and down. He goes, how about if I get excited, just as excited as you? And we're like, that's great. He He's clearly a guy that loves comedy. And Conan said when Tom Hanks would host SNL, Hanks was one of the few hosts that would stay up all night with the writers working on the sketches and stuff. He just, wow. it's just part of his DNA, you know? And, uh, that, yeah, that was a thrill just to do that with him. Wow. And you have to come up with so much material to put on that show every single night. I'm sure you really appreciate when you have a guest come in who wants to help out and throw the ball around with you guys and, and come up with ideas. There, there were times where we would come in with, like sometimes with guests, a lot of guests wouldn't want to do bits at all. They just want to do, you know, promote whatever they're promoting and stuff. But there would be others that would be really game for pretty much anything. Like Will Ferrell always wanted to do some kind of bit when he came on. And uh, Adam McKay would sometimes 
you know, our, our old Chicago improv buddy, but uh, Adam would come in and um, sometimes kick around ideas with him. But sometimes he would do bits like we had one idea for Will to heckle himself to say he had a dream of doing stand up. And then for we would we pre taped Will in the audience with a mustache and a Michael Jackson jacket, just um, heckling Will. Like so we pre taped Will as a heckler, <laughs> and then Will goes over and he starts nervously doing stand up, and he's he's terrible, <laughs> you know, he's really wooden and bad, and and Will, you cut to Will in the audience, he's like, not funny, <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was really, so he was always up for doing, and he always had, you know, would bring in great ideas, and he, uh, we did one at the Warner Brothers lot at, at the the Conan TBS show, where Will was uh supposedly said his new passion was training dogs to do really elaborate stunts. And um, so he had this obstacle course set up with like a rope and a uh, ramps and ladders, really complicated things. And we got a bunch of dogs that were completely untrained that, that were supposedly the dogs he'd been training. And uh, Will being the genius he is, he said, I don't think we should even rehearse this bit because then the dogs might do something that I tell them to do. <laughs> so if you watch that bit it's on youtube too where um the dogs just run out into the studio they have no training they go in all different directions and he's freaking out and yelling at them and he's saying that his passion that he's trained these dogs with painstaking care and like they're gonna do all this stuff. <laughs> and he starts yelling i will sell you to a mexican circus to like one of the dogs <laughs> and um it was just uh and he's screaming at coney he goes you just stood there you didn't do anything and he's getting you know, super mad and um, yelling at the audience. You people have no respect. And, uh, you know, made it 10 times funnier that it wasn't rehearsed. <laughs> oh, my God. That's great. So, like, when, when you guys transitioned to The Tonight Show, did you have to not, like, cut that all out, but you kind of felt like this, like, big pull of, like, okay, we have to, like, be a little more serious now. Just like when Letterman went to 1135, I felt like Letterman kind of, like, simmered down a little bit. Did you feel that kind of, that tightness and how creative you could get you know it was a very it was kind of a strange feeling because i don't remember any network people telling us that maybe maybe other people like above us were told that we had to simmer it down but but there was this feeling of almost some institutional baggage from the the history of the show where you felt like i don't think we can be a zany anymore and um but i don't and and looking back, I think twelve thirty was a much better fit for us, you know, being on later, because um, I felt like you were sort of up in an attic and no one was, the adults weren't paying attention, and, <laughs> and then we got to eleven thirty, and some of it was self imposed, but there was kind of an implied pressure to try to be a little more uh, accessible to everyone, and um, mm-hmm. even though no one really, I don't remember anyone explicitly telling us that. Um, and I like to think if the Tonight Show had gone on longer that we could have evolved into maybe a hybrid of the two, like where we could do more zany stuff. Um, and we did do some. And uh, I enjoyed some of the bits at the Tonight Show very much. And I enjoyed the experience overall. Uh, had some wonderful aspects to it. But um, I think we were more suited to the environment we had at Late Night and also at the TBS show, which came after the Tonight Show, where... Uh, remember Conan once saying, you know, if you're, if you're at the Tonight Show, you're kind of on a big boat that's a little difficult to, to turn. And, you know, 
uh, here at the TBS show, we can be more like one of those little cigarette boats that zips around and you know <laughs> goes whatever direction we want. And um, I always thought that suited us better, you know. Was there a, a chance of you you personally not going to the TBS show and then it sprouted and you were like, oh, we'll do this? Oh, you know, I, I really had no desire to leave. I, w- I was really curious to see what the next step was going to be. And I knew Conan was going to want to do some kind of fun show and I love the people I was working with. So I was, I was more than happy to go on to whatever the next thing was. I didn't know where it would be. Like I didn't know for a while we thought it might be FX or Fox or um, there were all kinds of, you know, possibilities. Um, but TBS, they ended up treating us well and it was really fun working on the Warner brothers lot. I got to say being a movie nerd, you know, just being around an old, Hollywood film lot and walking past and seeing, hearing like the tour guide saying, this is where Casablanca was filmed or something. And you're like, oh my God, that's the French cafe front where Ingrid Bergman and Bogart sat, you know, and just things like that. Or this is where Cagney shot his gangster movies or uh, that stuff would blow my mind, you know, just seeing things like that. And they would also shoot things like um, Gilmore Girls there, which I had never seen at the time. But we had a, a babysitter who came to the lot and she's like, she was German and she, she knew every Gilmore Girls episode and she was like, oh my God, this is the cafe, you know? <laughs> and you were like, right, but Bergman was over there. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I don't care about Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> yeah, it all depends on whatever. She had her different, completely different obsessions than I did, but it was, pre- it was pretty sweet. And so did you just look around you every day and go, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so lucky to be here. But I'm sure if you go there every single day, did it ever become a job at any point or were you always just in awe of where you were and what, what was happening? You know, I never, I tried to never lose the, the, the kind of, it's corny as it sounds, the kind of sense of wonder about like being around, especially being around a, a lot like that or, or working in Rockefeller Center was such a privilege. You know, I got to work in Rockefeller Center for 12 years and it, there's so much history there. And like you watch a movie like My Favorite Year you know, which was also filmed in Rockefeller Center. And I'm like, oh, God, this is this building has so much history. And so like they used to do classic radio programs there and um, and all that. And uh, just the history of and watching SNL as a kid and knowing that it was done a couple floors down. And sometimes I would cut through the SNL studio at night when I was going home and it would just be dark and there'd be no one in there. And it was just kind of a a surreal thing to see that that studio and just having grown up watching the show and and everything it was just kind of a an amazing thing to to be able to do when i when i was in college i interned at the tonight show and i was at 30 rock and there were there were two things that i couldn't believe existed that other people wouldn't know about unless you visited sometime and this is one in the snl studio there's like an overhang where the seats are because you know the seats are up and it, on the sign, it says, Farley, watch your head in Sharpie. Oh, man. Which means he probably hit his head there a lot. That's amazing. And then, um, and I think it's a Tonight Show, but don't quote me on that. But one of the like the green rooms, Jim Henson, I think, got bored one time and drew all these like, Muppet. You knew about the Jim Henson one? I did because that was Max's, that was originally Max Weinberg's dressing room. Um, and there was a utility closet in Max's dressing room. And one day our assistant stage manager goes, hey, you want to see the Henson pipes? And I was like, what are the Henson pipes? And he said, Jim Henson and Frank Oz had some downtime and they were so creative and so creatively restless all the time that they they couldn't just sit 
and like kill time. They they had to be creating something. So they painted these pipes. And have you seen them? They're they're incredible. Oh yeah, yeah. They look like Muppets. You're like, oh that's Kermit. But they this is drawing just happened to look like Muppets. That's the thing. Well, I'm so glad now they have them visible in a glass. Yeah, thing, yeah, you know? yeah. They're yeah, like glass at the time, notes. they were literally in a utility closet, um, locked away in Max's dressing room. <laughs> so um, that was an amazing thing to see. It was so inspiring to see people that are so creative that they can't help but they have to paint some pipes that no one will ever even see that are in a utility closet because that's just who they are. You know, they just, yeah. just bursting out of them. So were there a lot of like old comedians that you would get to meet maybe i don't know if milton burrow was alive by that point but any that you could think of you you got to meet them and you couldn't believe who they were in real life you know i'm trying to remember if i met any of the real classic 50s comedians and stuff like i never got to meet people like milton burrow but just to get to meet some people i grew up idolizing like i briefly said a thank you to steve martin you know and he was in the hall at late night and i'll never forget you know, when I was growing up, I don't know if you're like this, but I always assumed all entertainers were super outgoing and that you couldn't be an introvert if you were an entertainer. Now I know better and I, I'm an introvert myself and I think Stephen would consider himself one and a lot of great entertainers are that way. And Steve Martin is definitely one and like I that would blow that would have blown my mind to think that as a kid, that this is a guy who's kind of shy and quiet and he was just standing in the hallway like looking at things on the wall and he, he was kind of like an art professor you know a very nice art professor who's like <laughs> and i went over and i said excuse me mr martin i just want to say you know you you've had a huge impact on everyone here me included and i just wanted to thank you and he said oh thank you thank you very much he was just he was very soft-spoken and polite and there was nothing wacky or zany about him you know he's brilliant and can be that and turn that on but um you know i remember thinking uh now I've I've seen that with so many performers, including musical performers, where like Patty Smith, uh, she helped us out and did a comedy bit for us once. Uh, she did our silly Slipknot song for us. We did this <laughs> bit called the yep. Slipknots, and she was nice enough to do a, a ver her own version of the Slipknot song. And Patty Smith, when I grew up, I was like, she's the ultimate like in your face punk, you know, c incredibly courageous on stage and just putting it all out there. And when she was there, she was almost like someone that had been brought there by their by her dad or something. She was just really <laughs> quiet, and quiet, and um, he was like, "Oh, thank you, thank you so much." You know, and I was like, "This is Patty Smith," you know, and uh, thank you. So, well, Gilbert Godfrey's the same way. Like Gilbert Godfrey, you know, has that big brassy delivery. He was like, "God, what is what?" Is, and you meet him, and he's like. <laughs> just, you never thought now, you'd say gilbert can you speak up <laughs> i know it's just it i love that now when i when i get to or you know I, i've met some of the sctv people like mm. andrea and some of these people um i don't know how much they mean to a lot of the younger people that are comedy fans these days but to me they're like the beatles you know people like andrea martin or you know Catherine o'hara you know i know they get a lot of attention and, and accolades but um they were so huge to me as a kid SCTV was uh, incredibly important and I know Conan always said the same thing and Steven too um but meeting Andrea Martin like she was at she did the Conan TBS show and she was just sitting in her dressing room and she was another person I just had to say a quick thank you to and she couldn't have been sweeter and um so there are those people Michael Palin from Monty Python was another one 
Mm. I was like, I don't know if our audience really knows that much about Michael Palin. At the time, he was hosting the travel shows and stuff. Right. But I thought he was one of my biggest comedy heroes, you know. And um, so it was such, it blew my mind to see Michael Palin in the hall at late night and things like that, uh, even for a second. You mentioned SCTV. Me and Speedy, our favorite sketch that we used to do in college from SCTV (laughs) is the one where it's Eugene Levy as Perry Como. Oh, it's yeah. Perry Como yeah. still alive. Where he's on the stage laying flat and stuff. Yeah, he's laying yeah. flat. <laughs> yeah, laying in bed while he's singing. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's I like, fame. They, well, I love, too, that they would do bits like that. Even they're like, well, there's probably a lot of people watching. They're not going to know who Perry Como is. But we, like, I don't know if I knew who Perry Como was when I first saw that. And I still enjoyed it. And I would, like, be introduced to a lot of pop culture stuff through them. You know, same with Python. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, I know we were going to get to the Hall of Fame. I want to quickly talk about Colbert real quick because uh, you are in the Ed Sullivan Theater, which means a lot to us old souls. Obviously, the Beatles oh, played yeah. there uh, a lot. Um, I know you're working from, from home right now, but do you find yourself like making every excuse to go there just so you can like go smell the Ed Sullivan Theater? I was there yesterday, and it, it's such a it's always such a treat. Like As with Rockefeller Center, it's such a historic building with so much amazing there's such a vibe in the room and the fact that the, like you said, the Beatles were on that stage is blows my mind. Every time I I'm backstage and I'm just like, Oh my, Oh my God, they were right here on the stage. Elvis was right here. The Rolling Stones were right here on the stage, you know, playing when the, in the, when they were like 22. Dave and, Clark uh, five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, many, so many, so many legends. And, uh, you know, I just, and it really, the seats and everything look, pretty much as they do if you watch the old footage um there's uh some things have changed but it's pretty much it the the basic bones of the place haven't changed at all and it's it's wonderful to just walk around there do you have to get like a lot more political now with the way you write for colbert is that like a new challenge for you that you hadn't had to do a lot with conan it has been a challenge and it's been a fun challenge but um yeah at conan we if we dealt with politics it was usually more in a cartoonish Mm. Uh, glancing silly way like it, we'd have Robert Smigel come on as Bill Clinton you know, with the lips you know and his lips would the clutch <laughs> cargo bits we did where his he'd be like Neha! you know we'd write silly <laughs> too. it would be like you know but it would be like Clinton and then he'd be doing Don King and like they had me do some too like I was Mike Tyson and I did Martha Stewart and stuff but uh, I would usually come in if Robert was already doing a voice that you know but Robert did like I'd say 90% of the, the clutch voices. And as you know, he did triumph the insult comic dog too. And, um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was always fun. And, and, but it has been a challenge, you know, also the, it's much more monologue centric at, at the Colbert show, like at Conan, he would usually tell a few monologue jokes and then we'd get over to the desk for the desk piece, you know, but the monologue is much more obviously a, a larger part of the new show. And, um, and that's that's really a cool challenge too, you know, in and of itself. But it is it is different in many ways. And I know that um, I think I had read this in an interview that you did once, where you said that generally you love well, you love everything when it comes to comedy. But <laughs> your preference <laughs> um, is to make up absurd characters that aren't real and play in that world versus uh, making sketches about real people and celebrities and politicians. Is do you still feel that way? I do tend to gravitate towards more towards character and silly bits and things that are not ripped from the headlines. You know, it's just, it, it's my natural inclination and it's my, my natural 
think my natural strengths lend themselves more to silly character stuff and uh and uh a you know apolitical stuff but um but i enjoy the challenge of trying to to write that other stuff too but yeah i i never i never really enjoyed writing stuff that's like at someone's expense you know sometimes Mm -hmm. someone has it coming like if they're if there's someone who's just evil and you're going after someone in politics that's just doing horrible things you know i have no problem going after them and i think we should and i'm glad people are but um but i i never really enjoyed writing jokes about celebrities that much because usually they're either just really mean or they don't work <laughs> you know <laughs> those are kind of the it's like they're they're either at someone's expense or there's why are you even telling the joke it's not like when i used to do the traveling salesman character at, at conan Sometimes one of the fun things we would toss in there was he would start trying to sell Conan jokes, celebrity jokes. And we would always make the jokes praising the celebrity. And, it would, and Conan would be like, why would I want that? It would be like, you know, say that Angela Jolie, if she was any more talented, she'd put the sun right out of business. You know, it would always be like, <laughs> it, would be, it, w- it wouldn't be at anyone's, and it would be like, that joke's terrible. you know. And uh, But those were especially fun to write because they were kind of going against what you know, it was kind of addressing something that was, uh, I was genuinely thinking about, um, which is, you know, I, I've never liked going after people unless they have it coming for some reason, but, you know, like make it fun of somebody because they're movie bombed or something. I'm just like, Oh, right. they're probably feeling bad enough as it is. Yeah. Brian, I apologize if uh, we're taking up too much of your time. Uh, no, how, no. how are you doing right now? I know you probably oh. worked a long day. Oh, doing fine. Thanks. Thanks, Danny. I appreciate it. No problem. No problem. I, I, I heard somebody there, so I'll make sure that I'm not taking up your, your family time, too. Oh, no, no. You, I, I was just letting the dogs in, so everything's fine. Yeah. That's one of, the, one of the nice things is just being around my family and also, like, the dogs will be sitting next to me when I'm writing a lot, so that's been uh, one of the nice things. I do miss being around everybody at work, but there's been a lot of nice things about being home, too. And, and then Colbert's like, I'm getting a lot of pitches about this dog character, <laughs> Brian. What's well, funny, uh, my dog, one of my dogs has been in a few cold opens or a couple bits because they're like, hey, can you lift your dog into frame and just have that be part of it? And I, I would just like bring my dog in. And, uh, <laughs> so it's fun. It feels like you're kind of doing a school play sometimes. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's get to the Rock and Roll of Fame a little bit. Uh, those will be on HBO Max. I think the 20th. Don't quote me on that. Um, but they did tape it. This year has Tina Turner, Carol King, The Go-Go's, Jay-Z, Foo Fighters, Todd Rundgren, Billy Preston, and LL Cool J. I watched the trailer for it on YouTube, and they didn't have Todd Rundgren in the trailer, and I was very upset. Is uh-huh. that ups- Brian, I would assume you're also a Todd Rundgren fan. I am. I don't know all his stuff, but I love like Something Anything and like that early... Right, like, you know that one Rose movie. album. <laughs> yeah, I just love... He- and he's a he's a genius producer. Like He's produced like the New York dolls and a lot of amazing things that you would never think he worked on. And yeah, he's, and he's a studio wizard, obviously like he had was an incredible innovator in the studio. And um, yeah, I'm glad I, he definitely deserves uh, to be in there. Yeah. He was on my short list of people that needed to get in there. Um, and obviously Billy Preston too is a great one. Perfectly timed since that new um, Beatles documentary is coming out that he'll be in since he had a lot to do with, with let it be how excited are you for that beatles documentary incredibly excited it's especially since i i've heard that it illuminates how much 
the, the, it was so much more um the band was so much closer than the original let it be film indicated like they they kind of the way they edited it and put together originally it made it seem much more acrimonious and i apparently this new movie shows that the band really really loved each other and loved working with each other and yeah they would spat like siblings and you know have have a hard time with each other and get on each other's nerves but they really loved there's a reason why they made so much great music and i think from what I hear, Jackson's film shows all that, and um, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, yeah. When I, I told you I was talking to John Sebastian last week from Love and Spoonful, and he was telling me how, like, when they broke up, the press was just like, oh, they all hate each other. Oh, my gosh. But John was like, no, we were all hanging out, like, three months later. It wasn't that big of a deal. They were, like, my closest friends. We just knew creatively we weren't going to work together anymore. Yeah, there you go. And it, it's so great that you talked to John Sebastian. I, I met him very briefly at late night because he was friends with Jimmy Vivino, who is the guitar player in the, in our band and, and later the band leader at, at the Conan show. And, uh, he kind of jokingly, like I came up and I go, Oh, nice to meet you, Mr. Sebastian. And Jimmy goes, Mr. Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it, to him, it's just his buddy. But I, I didn't know what else to say. I was just, I, I so deferential around these people, you know, but he, he was super nice. <laughs> um, so, Brian, I'm going to read you and Speedy both a list of some people that aren't in the Rock and Roll of Fame. And I would love if you could each tell me your number one wish that you would throw in there. Or you can write in somebody, too, if you don't like my list. But this is my short list. <laughs> um, number one on the website I went to was Eminem, but I'm assuming that's not good. Well, actually, Speedy loves Eminem. She might go for that. But <laughs> I have a feeling he won't be my number one, but it does hurt a little bit, yes. <laughs> when did his first album come out? Because don't you have to? it doesn't have to have come out 25 years before Apparently, he is in that range, which is actually just scary to think about. It is. Eminem yeah. being around 25 years, but that maybe wasn't a big album, but he had a first one. Oh, I figure um, he'll be in there eventually. Yeah. They're doing the whole rap thing now because they're running out of rock bands, frankly. <laughs> that, there you go. Um, I often, you know, when, whenever like these discussions about how seriously to take these things come up, I often think of when the Kinks got inducted uh, and what Ray Davies said. Did you ever see that? No, what did Ray Davies, that's the lead singer and songwriter of the Kinks, what did he say? Yeah, well, he got up and they're being inducted to the Hall of Fame and he says, he says, um, it's clear that rock and roll has become respectable. And as the crowd starts to clap, he goes, what a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) um, So I often think about that when, uh, like, like when I, when, when I get, close to taking awards and things like that too seriously. Like I just remember that a lot of it is so subjective and that, you know, the reason they got into music originally had nothing to do with that. And um, I have nothing against, I I enjoy a lot about the rock and roll hall of fame and I love seeing artists get recognized, you know, um, when they deserve it and everything. But I just, I always often think of that quote when, uh, (laughs) when the votes come around. Well, you think about like the grateful dead never really had a hit. Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix only had like one technical hit if you count the US Billboard charts. Like they really it's just a metric for people to sell. Yeah, exactly. It's just you know, and, and I, I, I think I often think about like I remember when the the replacements were named by Musician magazine the last best band of the eighties, you know, I remember Bon Jovi said, How can they be the best band if I've never heard of them? And I'm like, No. Oh well, I guess if, if your argument is popularity, there's no I see what you're saying, but that doesn't mean they're not a great band. It's just they, they may not have a huge audience, you know, like a lot of the best. It does. So you realize that if you're going to equate popularity with quality, sometimes it, it 
there's a correlation, you know, with the Beatles and Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, you know, sometimes great stuff is popular too, but sometimes it isn't. Okay, so the rest of this list got Eminem, uh, Graham Parsons, your favorite. I love uh, it. Oasis, Willie Nelson, King Crimson, John Coltrane, Emerson, Lincoln Palmer, The Monkees, Bad Company, The Spinners, Boston, Three Dog Night, Steppenwolf, Iron Maiden, The Replacements, Super Tramp, Weezer, Ozzy Osbourne, Outkast, and I'm just going to throw some indie bands in there so I can get specific, The Smiths, Wilco, Beck, and Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, wow. Speedy, do you have a specific first draft pick that you would take there? Oh, and of course, I want to throw this out there. Dolly Parton is not in the Rock and Roll Fame, and we'll get to why I think that she needs to be. But Speedy, do, do you have one that you like well, the most? Willie Nelson really stuck out to me. I'm pretty shocked to to learn that he's not in there. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I he first of all, I mean, he's just a household name. Even if you don't care anything about folk music or rock music or any of that, everybody right. knows who that is. And he was so influential to so many other artists who probably are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It seems it seems like a slight that he's not there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm genuinely shocked by that. There there were several names you mentioned that I just assumed were were in there already. Um, like I, I was shocked to hear the Pixies aren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but like they're not. I, or someone told me that they're not, and uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But but like there's there are bands. Like you said, like I look at a guy like Graham Parsons or a band like the Pixies or Husker Du, and there wouldn't be uh, as as great as Nirvana was. Uh, right. Dave Grohl himself says, you know, and the Foo Fighters are getting in this year, right? Um, mm-hmm. He'll say, we wouldn't have existed if it weren't for Husker Du or the Pixies. You know mm-hmm. that those were bands that were absolutely essential to what we became, and and I'm glad that he acknowledges that, even if the bands that influenced him don't get in i'm glad he at least says that you know yeah i think kirk cobain was trying to do the pixies at first and he stumbled into nirvana's but they they often say so that that makes sense i should have said emmy lou harris i know you love her too and she's oh, also yeah. not the rock hall of fame i guess i guess they're seen as country artists like she and and willie uh, nelson are probably pigeonholed in that country thing but they're obviously they've obviously been uh crossover artists much of their career and I think they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for sure. Right. If we can be upset about Eminem not being in there, then certainly uh, Emmylou Harris and Willie Nelson. My goodness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember when Neil Young played one time, Emmylou just came by to sing backup with him. And I love when great artists who just love other artists just come by to just, like she just stood in the background and she sang backup. And I'm like, like Nico Case came on when M. Ward was on. And I love Nico yes. Case so much. Me too. And uh, she's one of my favorite artists and, and human beings. And, and um, she came to just sing back up with M. Ward one time and play the harpsichord. And uh, and I'm like, I love when they have, there's no ego involved. They're just like, I, I love this guy's music. I like singing with him. I saw her back up Jacob Dylan once too, just on tour. Mm-hmm. And they're just, they're, they're artists. You know, they don't worry about if they're the ones out front all the time, you know, they, if they, if they're working with people they love whose music they love, that's all they care about. And I love that. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand why they've decided that like folk can count as rock. Like they'll put Joan Baez in there who is, but they won't put like Emmylou Harris in there or yeah. Willie Nelson. Like I, I think country and folk can be close enough. If we're going to start putting rap in there and Madonna's in there, like we can include some country people. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. 
Um, do you have like a, you don't have to rank them, but like three concerts that have meant the most to you in your lifetime? There's a few. I've seen so many wonderful concerts. One was the first time I saw The Replacements. It was in Chicago at the Aragon Ballroom and they were just on fire. And like, I know they'd had, I never saw one of their train wreck shows. Like there were shows early in the eighties. There were some shows where they would just self-destruct on stage and just not play any of their own songs. They would start going in an unrehearsed Leonard Skinner song or something, <laughs> or they would just sabotage themselves. But I, the, the shows I saw them do were all great. And the first one was especially wonderful for me. Um, I saw REM once back in college in 85 when the fables of the reconstruction tour and, that one stuck sticks out uh, in my mind. And the first time I saw Springsteen, it was in '84, and he he played for over four hours, and that one really stood four? out. Four, it was wow. amazing. Like he took a break after like two and a half or two forty-five, and and um, it just the energy, the nonstop energy, and of the the band and the entertainment value, how much they love performing was just radiating out at me and um that was amazing and um i always love seeing super chunk live they're they're uh they were so fun to see you know just a great indie rock band and my friend john worcester plays drums for them and i i he's one of the funniest guys in the world too he does a lot of comedy stuff with tom sharpling on the best show wfmu's show and um he's just it's not fair that he's such a great drummer and so funny but yeah <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and seeing Nico Case, you know, I, my, my daughter, her first concert, my younger daughter, my older daughter, I'm proud to say, when she was seven, I took her to see McCartney at Madison Square mm-hmm. Garden, and that was her first concert, and that was that was a Casual. really special night. That was one of my favorite memories of my entire life, actually, because I was taking her more out of like a historical thing, like gotta go see a Beatle. This is something you want to be able to see right. and say you saw, but I didn't expect it to be so great. I didn't expect it to be such a wonderful show. And so that's a very special one. And, and Nico Case ended up being my younger daughter's first show. And she was a big fan. We would play her in the car. And Colette got to really love her music that way. So that was a special one, too. There's been so many, though. I'm, I'm forgetting some great ones. Uh, my, my favorite Onion article ever that I've referenced before in the show with Speedy is uh, Dad gives vinyl record to daughter to ensure that she never relates to anybody else her age ever again (laughs) and that's me and speedy's life that's why we're hosting this podcast but with you when you're sharing like nico case your daughter's gonna go to school be like hey do you guys like nico case and you don't know if anyone else will know you just like whatever i just i'm gonna play what i like and then at least know i have one person out there who also likes what i like i know i I, like I, i i'm still grateful to my parents for playing things like Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark album or something like I, the stuff that I still love that I that I was turned on to through them or you know some old folk rock stuff or Creedence Clearwater Revival my dad came back from Vietnam with all these Creedence albums and stuff and um, I was a little kid really little and um, so that stuff I'll always love too that classic stuff that I learned through my parents you know mm-hmm. and uh, we recorded this on Veterans Day so um, thank you for your dad's service Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I'm glad he. I, luckily, I'll always be grateful that he he was able to come home to us. And I, my heart goes out to everybody whose you know loved ones didn't. And I'll always be, I always consider us very lucky that he he came home. But thank you. No problem. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because it's getting late. Um, Speedy, we've talked about Second City and and Late Night <laughs> and Colbert and the Rock and Roll of Fame and famous comedians, musicians, and Nico Case. Uh, 
Is there anything that you really wanted to ask Brian that you thought of you didn't get to? I like to do like little errors and omissions at the end. Ooh, I guess I would be curious just what your all-time favorite sketches that you either got to be in or even just watch if you weren't in it. What's what's your favorite favorite memory? Oh, uh, from from shows I've worked on. Myself? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, um, that's a good question. Uh, there's so many that I love that I had nothing to do with. You know, like I remember um, Brian McCann and John Glazer did a bit called "T Copywriters Cage Match" one time. That <laughs> was it was guys in the audience. I can't. It's hard to explain, but it was guys who wrote the copy that's on boxes of tea. You know that really flowery. Uh, <laughs> I end up arguing over who writes better copy on the tea box, and they have a cage match to the death to settle who was the better tea copywriter. And it's impossible to even explain it. But those are a lot of times my favorite sketches or those one-off things, or um, you know, just. Uh, but I, I'll, myself, like I have a special place in my heart for that. I mentioned Amy Poehler doing Andy's little sister because that was like. Yeah. She was so her performance was so spectacular, and uh, that was the first sketch I really wrote at late night, you know, on my own. And I was just, um, I'll always be grateful to her for that. And um, I always love doing, you know, I always love doing uh, bits like the traveling salesman and Gruner Ghost and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, there were so many sketches I loved. Um, little things pop into my head too, like. I remember Michael Komen did it, created a character called Jabba the Foxworthy, which was uh, Jabba the Hutt with a Jeff Foxworthy mustache. And he said he was talking <laughs> like Jeff Foxworthy. But sometimes it's those little ones that no one remembers that I tickle me the most, you know? He's like, you might, you just might be a hut <laughs> instead of a red like, You live on Tatooine, a desert planet, you just might be and it was just job of the box buddy. It wasn't even a pun, you know. So, um, you know, so there's just yeah, there's countless little bits like that I that I remember and and things like the Slipknots, which we created late night out of pure desperation and sleep deprivation. Like we we needed a sketch the next day, and the band Slipknot was going to be on the show. So we're like, what if there's a I don't know like a group that. Uh, they're called the slip nuts and they slip slip on nuts. Is that what, and it just literally, <laughs> just, and it, that's another thing where it was like, all right, so we come out and we sing about slipping on nuts and we pour nuts on the ground. <laughs> we're like, all right, <laughs> we can go home now. And it was like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. We're like, um, so a lot of times, a lot of this stuff came up just because we needed something to fill the slot. You know? <laughs> the, the craziest thing about working in comedy is when, you are fighting for something that if you read it out loud on paper, you couldn't believe that you were putting all of your chips in for. Like even like your first sketch where you're like, okay, this is my big break. I'm here on a 13-week loan. Please let me have a maniacal murderous sister threaten coming. (laughs) This will be my career. It's so true. And a lot of times the the bits I was most uh, worried about did – did well and other ones sometimes you'd be really confident in a bit and it would just die horribly you know like it would just be or sometimes you you a lot of times the things that were thrown together kind of accidentally ended up being the stuff people like most and the stuff you really banged your head on the computer all night to write sometimes those look end up looking forced or uh just get no response at all so we definitely had our share of huge failures but i love that we took swings 
And I love that Conan gave us the freedom to take swings and Steven does too, where you can just go out there and take some risks. And um, they know that that's where the good stuff happens. You have to be able to take risks and take swings and, and give things a try. And um, otherwise you never get anywhere. You never do anything that anyone remembers. Did you ever have sketches that performed completely differently in rehearsal versus when you had an actual audience there? Yeah, like we had a couple. I, I remember writing one sketch. This was, <laughs> this unfortunately we had to pull from the show. And I remember at rehearsal, it went over really well. Like Conan really liked it. It was inspired by, Orson Welles made a movie of Kafka's The Trial, where uh, these creepy like inspectors come in and they, they're telling Anthony Perkins he's under arrest. They won't tell him what he's accused of. And they're real sinister. And, you know, they're off on the corner. And like, he, it's super paranoid and weird and black and white. And uh, it's a pretty amazing underrated or- Orson Welles film. But I was like, what if these inspectors show up in the studio and they won't tell Conan what, what he's in trouble for? And we did it and it was very weird and conceptual. And um, Conan really enjoyed it at rehearsal. And uh, it didn't get... It was like deep space silence <laughs> where it was kind of funny. Like I almost started laughing cause I'm like, Oh, they just, this is just too weird. And, um, they just, and so other times you do stuff that was super weird and they, they loved it. And so, but that was one where we took a big swing, <laughs> just totally whiffed. But, um, I'm still glad we tried it. And, uh, but then there were others that, um, like I remember the first time I did the ghost crooner, I, I was like, I love yeah, that. Sketch. It was a sketch that, you know, was fun to do. And I was enjoying that. It was kind of getting a chance to do kind of a Bing Crosby type singer, but that got a much better response than I expected. Cause it was just, in fact, if I'd known I was going to be doing more of them, I would have written a different melody. Cause I end up singing the same stupid song every single time. <laughs> it's the exact same song. And I'm like, I would have at least written different songs if I thought it was going to get any kind of reaction. So sometimes those things would catch off guard and other ones that we would love would get nothing you know like I, we wrote a sketch called destructo me and tommy Blacha, where it was inspired by something tommy used to do, do this alien voice character go conan o'brien prepare for your destruction and he would press a button like <laughs> and it was just and so we did this thing where he was an alien who was sent from another galaxy to destroy conan but he kept getting distracted by mundane things like telemarketers are calling him and his, <laughs> his landlord comes by to ask for the rent and he's like i am very busy right now and he had a huge green head and at rehearsal i'll never forget our director liz Planka said you guys will be doing a lot of these this is gonna kill and it, the audience was like not nah, <laughs> so, so that was one week where we we went to huge trouble we had prosthetic green heads and and I was like, oh, this will probably be a running classic. And it was like, the audience was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so you never know. But I love that we tried it anyway. Um, before we go, I, I, I want to get a little deep before we leave. Because um, sure. I feel like for me and Speedy, who uh, are not at the big time yet, uh, we'll get anxious and we'll have anxiety about doing things and being mad at ourselves, maybe not or not doing them well enough. But then we'll think, Oh, but if I was just, you know, at the big time, it'd be different because, you know, I'd be there. I would have known I have made it by now. But by the time you get there, the stakes are always higher. So for you personally, even though you have a cemented career, um, do you ever still deal with anxiety? And how do you? Oh, all the time. Danny. I like I've never really stopped. Like I, I definitely I've always um, taken things really personally I, with comedy, like when it goes well or doesn't go well and 
I've gotten a little better about it as I've gotten older, but um, it was funny when in Conan, um, uh, when he did on his Conan O'Brien needs a friend podcast, he's when he was talking to Tina Fey, I remember he said, he said to her, no one's face falls when his sketch gets cut like Brian's <laughs> No way. <laughs> and because uh, and Tina, you know, was laughing because she, she knows, you yeah. know, was an old friend of ours from Chicago and stuff. And like she, I think, um, and it's true. Like she, he used to, and, but I've got, I, I don't think I take it nearly as personally as I used to. I still try to make stuff as funny and I, I still care a lot. But um, I think when I was younger, it was the stakes felt much higher to me. And um, I still tr- try my best to make things as good as they can be. But yeah, I don't think the anxiety, it's funny. You always think that, that's why I, I kind of think there's probably the people at the very top of show business, like the, the really big directors like Martin Scorsese, I feel like, he, I wonder if people like him or Paul Simon or, you know, uh, Carol King or these people, do they sit around and get mad at themselves when, when they have their little failures to this day, even though they've done stuff, like they don't have to do anything. And <laughs> I'm like, they probably still feel crappy when things don't turn out right, you know? <laughs> and, um, so I don't think it ever really goes away. I remember Tom Purcell, who's one of our executive producers at, at Colbert, uh, just a brilliant writer and everything. I remember when he got into the Second City Touring Company and I, I wasn't working there yet and I was dreaming of it. I said to him one day, I said, if I could get into the Second City Touring Company, I could die happy. That's just, that's all I ever need to, that's like top of the mountain for me. Like I And I really meant it. And Tom said, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. But then once you get in, you're thinking, this is great. But I, I, then you start looking at what the next level is. You start looking, when am I going to get in the resident company? And I was like, oh, that's probably true. And it probably never really goes away. You're always kind of thinking, um, you know, what, what am I going to do next or whatever? And I, I sit there and think someone like Tom Hanks, you know, there's probably things where he's like, yeah, but I haven't done this yet. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I could be wrong. Maybe he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm good. I'm happy." But I think most artists stay. The great ones kind of stay restless. You know, like that's why you see people like Neil Young experimenting and trying different. Like, I'll do a synth a synth pop album or a country <laughs> album, and like, and they're like, "No, Neil, you can just keep doing what you're doing." He goes, "No, that." Like Joni Mitchell said once, "If if you uh, they'll crucify you for changing and they'll crucify you for staying the same, but." staying the same is boring. So I'd rather be crucified for changing. <laughs> so I think a lot of the great artists are restless and want to keep mixing it up. And, and I don't think the anxiety probably ever goes away for anyone. I wish, I wish, I wish I could say it did, but um, I still, I still struggle with it myself for sure. I mean, that's what I, I want to hear that that's just part of the trade. You'll have to control it. It actually fuels you and actually ends up being a good thing. So I get it. Absolutely. It, it's believe me, uh, I don't know. I've I've yet to meet anyone who hasn't struggled with it in some way. Even people that are way more successful than I've ever dreamed of being, you know, they they I think those same things are still floating around in their heads all the time. Right. There's a reason that Elon Musk is trying to shoot himself into space, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think um yeah, I think it's just human nature probably to just always be looking for the next thing or or find and I think it can be a motivator too. Like I always think about how 
you know, Paul Simon is like, I'm going to go work with the, these African musicians because I've never done anything like that. Or then I'm going to go work with Brazilian musicians. And just, I think the great artists who just are always pushing themselves, I really admire that because I think it must be tempting to kind of rest on your laurels if you're at that level. And like the Beatles, that's always blown my mind. When you look at they were together about six years or seven years at the artistic risks they took in that short amount of time, like when they were at the height of their fame and they're like, we could just keep doing this mop top thing, you know, and just singing from me to you and stuff. And they're like, no, we got to start putting in a sitar and we got to yeah. do a song with one chord and we got to do a song with a piccolo trumpet and strings. And they were, they were artists in spite of themselves kind of like, and they just, the changes, the risks that they took, I it blow my mind in such a short time. Like I think about something, six years ago be in 2015 and i'm trying to imagine a band going through those kind of changes between 2015 and now it doesn't even seem possible you know yeah and that's why you were going to see in the documentary that uh they were pushing each other a lot and a lot of that came from paul and that's where some of their uh tension came from but okay i don't want to take up any more of brian stack's time because you've had a long busy day well it was my pleasure honestly and uh if there's anything else you want to ask it no problem but um I had a great time talking to you, so thank you. Thank you, Brian Stack. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And it's, you know, just personally so awesome for me to get to speak with you because, I mean, especially, you know, growing up with my family, I always, always watched Conan. And some of the stuff that you did on that show was some of my favorite stuff of all time. I mean, Minty is now uh, a Christmas song that my family sings every year truly when we're putting up Christmas ornaments on the tree and uh, sometimes my mom just in conversation will go oh Conan in the voice that you used when you were the uh, audience awards fashion correspondent uh, oh yeah, yeah. Claire St. Wallens oh, yes God, <laughs> yeah um, and she has Todd Levin to thank for Minty for sure and Todd uh, Todd was a, a great guy to work with and I love writing with him he had so many great ideas and he uh he also created Basic Cable, named that tune, where he had me play that obnoxious <laughs> guy who's uh, sings knockoff versions of hits. And um, but uh, but thank you so much, Molly. I appreciate that, and uh, I it means a lot because I, I know how much growing up, how how much I loved watching various shows, and it it, it really it, I find it very it means a lot to me to hear that anything we did meant something to you like that. So thank you. Oh man, yeah, thank you so much. I can't wait to show this episode to my mom, actually. She's going to flip. <laughs> oh, please, please give her my best. And uh, that's so wild that you're from Palatine. Anyway, I know we've talked about oh, that. Oh, we came <laughs> back to Chicago. I Chicago. knew you should. Oh, you I, I promise I won't talk anymore about Palatine, but that's, right. that's a crazy coincidence. Now we have to end on murder. So glad. <laughs> it's full, yeah, full circle. you got to get back to death. It's always a callback. Uh, well, thank you, Brian Stack, and <laughs> have a wonderful so much, evening. Danny. Thank you, Molly, and uh, honestly, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on.